hearts would be soft to receive from you what you would have for us in your word this morning. And that as we celebrate the freedom of our country this day, that we would always remember the freedom that we have with our Heavenly Father through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ above all. So that you be glorified in our midst. And Lord, that we would rejoice forevermore at what we have in you, Lord Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You can always tell when one of our readers actually reads before they come, because this is the New Testament verse. Well done, Catherine. You know, you know, I've seen people get twisted up on this a lot. And so we're in this series about no condemnation. And we saw last week the first pillar of wisdom, to borrow a phrase from Lawrence of Arabia. Um, Paul is giving us four pillars of wisdom in chapter 7, coming off of chapter 6, so that we might understand how relevant the law is in our life, but what our relation to it really truly is. Because we don't keep rules in the Christian life just to keep rules. We know those people, right? And nobody wants to be around just rule-keeping people for the sake of keeping rules. And Paul wants to take us there with all the complexity and the theology that he can muster so that we might mind this diamond, which is a walk with Jesus Christ together. So I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Last week, we saw our relation to the law, and Paul used marriage as a metaphor, right? That we're either married to the law or we're married to Christ. And I brought out that wonderful Robert Louis Stevenson novel, to remind us, which is a biblical description of what our lives are. We are all on the outside, Dr. Jekyll, but we drink the, the, the potion of sin inside where Mr. Hyde. And we're dead to the law, and the law has no right over us in Christ. All right? So we're going to look at the three more pillars that help us relate to this law this week. All right? So the first pillar was our relation to it. Second pillar this week is the relation of law to our rebellious nature, to our sin nature, to sin itself. So let's look at this. He begins this autobiographical section by answering an anticipated objection in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul's point here is to point out that the law, number one, reveals what sin is. It shows us what it is. It's one of the purposes of it. Okay? Scholars are suggesting that Paul's personal experience of this may have taken place during his bar mitzvah where he become, as the term translates at your bar mitzvah, a son of the law. And whether before that time or after, the candidate always deeply studies the Ten Commandments. And when he got down to the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, his sharp young mind began to grasp the concept that his whole inner being is filled with coveting. Moreover, he saw that the rest of the Ten Commandments are broken 
through the sins of coveting. So as a result, the young Saul began to see himself for who he really was. A totally depraved sinner. And the scriptures witness this is indeed what the law does. He writes in Romans 3, through the law comes knowledge of sin. And James 1, 22 and 25 tells us that the law is a mirror that reveals the inner man. And it really is a gift, quite frankly. The law not only reveals what sin is, it also activates it. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. In other words, sin, setting up a base of operations through the commandment not to covet, produced in me coveting. All right? And so... I was alive, blissfully indifferent before I came to Christ to the searching demands of the law. But when the commandment not to covet came, sin sprang to life, and I felt the sentence of death. So Paul, once he realized what covetousness was, all he could do was covet. Other scriptures also attest to sin's active power in our lives. Romans 5.20 contends, now the law came in to increase the trespass. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 15.56, the power of sin is the law. And this is all of our experience, is it not? It was for Augustine. Augustine's observation as a young punk teenager who noticed that there was a sign not to steal from the pear orchard next to his house what did he do stole the pears so things haven't changed much in 1600 years have they the law says don't covet but my nature says well that sounds exciting <laughs> right you know it's true the mall at the university of maryland was only used at graduation a patch of it was only used at graduation so guess what the sign said keep off the grass there was a well-worn path right through the middle of it okay it's pleasurable to lie on the forbidden grass have you ever considered what would happen if on the main street of the town a box of rocks was placed out a store window and it said don't throw rocks at the pane window what would happen it'd be broken in 24 hours you know that right Kent Hughes says it this way, even human laws prohibitions are to us like shaking is to a can of cola. Not only does the law reveal, not only does it activate sin, Paul goes on to say it, it kills us. Verse 10 and 11 say, the very commandment that promised life proved de to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment to seed me and through it killed me. See, the commandments perfect, perfectly kept would bring life, but broken, they bring death. And so that's the two uses, but there's a third use of the law, and the law brings recognition of the magnitude of our sin. 
So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be known to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. See, before we came under the teaching of the good news of Jesus, some of us were blissfully unaware of the depth of our sin. Then we began to see something of God's righteous requirements, and our sinfulness then become painfully apparent. Now that we have become Christians and life is a continuing revelation of the radical, nation of, radical nature of our sin, every year as I grow in the Lord, every year as you grow in the Lord, we become more aware that though we've been born again and our sin is covered by Christ's blood, I am in myself thoroughly, disgustingly sinful. And the more I understand God's law, the more I see my sin as Paul writes in verse 13, Beyond measure. Sounds kind of dark, doesn't it? You know? Hold that thought. I would disagree. It's not dark. There's a key to liberation, as we will see. So that second pillar of wisdom of the law shows the utter pervasiveness of sin and the knowledge of the law is indispensable for our salvation and growth. So now in verse 14, we reach the third pillar, which is our struggle with sin. And this whole section of Romans 7 has had lots of controversy in the church throughout the years. There's the view that this passage is describing a non-Christian Pharisee under the law, which is what the early Greek fathers believed. The second view is that it describes the normal Christian life, which is the view of Augustine, Luther, Calvin, all the good guys. All right? The third position is that it describes a carnal Christian. A carnal Christian is a person who is Christian, professes by faith, but that's all his Christian life is. You know, there's no effect on him or her, and they live under their senses and their passions. I believe that the second view is the correct one, mainly because Paul is writing in the first person and he's writing in the present tense. Therefore, what he's describing here that Catherine read for us is the normal Christian experience. It's a self-portrait that Paul describes himself. But as one who loves the law of God, longs to please God, but he's trying to love God on his own strength. Here's the key. A so-called carnal Christian does not have that as a goal, quite frankly. They don't care about pleasing God. Paul speaks with a, with a candor, which is to be praised. This is Paul's autobiography, but it's also experience of every Christian, anyone who is seriously following Christ knows this struggle. So he states the problem that we all know. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, 
but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that the law is good. Someone said after reading this that Paul must have been a golfer, you know, because all golfers know that what you want to do, you don't do. And the very thing you don't want to do, that's what you do, all right? But the reality, brothers and sisters, that this is a lot more important than someone's golf score. How many thousands have said these words to their pastor in confession or their counselor? It's the cry of the believer who's trying to live the Christian life, but they're doing it on their own strength. So Paul finds himself, therefore, dominated by his rebellion, by his sin. So he continues in verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but that sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that isn't in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what, keep, what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Notice Paul says twice, it is no longer I who do it. But what he's actually saying, he does not do it, that does not mean he's not himself doing it. But what is his deep inner self, renewed in Christ, wants to do. He's dominated by sin. Thomas Akempis relates to this and wrote of this exact same frustration when he wrote, I desire to enjoy thee inwardly, but I cannot take thee. I desire to cleave to heavenly things, but fleshly things and unmortified passions depress me. I think Thomas writes for us all, does he not? How often have we tried with all our might at Lent? Right? Uh, tried with all our might to follow Jesus more, more wholeheartedly, but have been pulled down by our own flesh and failed. Paul understands what's happening at times like this and records them for you, for me. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. See, Paul is recognizing that he's a man of two natures. One delights in the law of God, and the other wages war against God's law. The Christian is subject to these two forces simultaneously, and we live in a state of tension. He writes about this to the Galatian church, chapter 5, verse 17, where he writes, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other and to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This is a passionate piece of writing that Paul is giving us. And, and he is attempting to help us to understand that we all experience the Christian life this way. Every single one of us. And so... If you were to take this third pillar of the wisdom of the law and, and define it, it's a believer who tries to please God on his own strength and on his own will, coming away disheartened, frustrated, always. This happens 
to Christians. This happens to good Christians. This happens to those A plus 100% hate those people always getting straight A Christians. Paul was the greatest Christian probably who ever was. He planted the church. Without Paul, we wouldn't be here. He had more theology and passion in his little finger than we have in our whole body. And despite all this, he sometimes tried to live up to God's standards on his own strength. And it would be naive to say that after Paul came to an understanding of how sin defeats us through the wall, he never came under bondage again. I personally believe that with time, he came less and less under bondage, but he never achieved perfection. Because I don't think this side of heaven, we will achieve perfection. We're going to get there as we go into chapter 8. That's what This is just glorious, applicable stuff for our Christian lives, my friends. So then we arrive at the fourth p- pillar, which is the most important. It's the believer's deliverer and the believer's power. Verse 24 and 25, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The adjective wretched means a miserable, distressed condition. Paul has come to the end of himself, and this is the ground of the fourth pillar of the wisdom of the law in our lives. How so? Because such a cry takes us to the very place that the Lord Jesus began in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the bankrupt. Blessed are the wretched. Paul's in good shape right here. This is good. Because when the believer realizes his helplessness, he will receive God's help. As long as we think we can do it ourselves, we get stuck in Romans 7 and we'll never go to Romans 8. All right? I must admit it that this is not only Paul here. It's me. It's you. It's all of us. When will we ever learn? Paul is every man or woman who truly seeks to follow Jesus. So how does... He handled this coming to the end of himself, because that's what he's done here. He handles it beautifully. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Notice he doesn't say, I must do it. I must press on. Who will rescue me? Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here he anticipates something else he knew very well, the victory of the cross, the victory of the power of the the indwelling Holy Spirit in each and every one of us. I've come to the end. I know where to look, to Jesus Christ and his indwelling spirit. Praise be to God. You can take those grave clothes off, friends. Ray Steadman wrote it this way. There are teachers who teach that this passage in Romans 7 is something the Christian goes through but once. Then he gets out of it and moves to Romans 8, never to return. Ray writes, nothing could be further from the truth. 
even as mighty a man as Paul went through it again and again and again. This is the description of what every believer will go through many times in his experience because sin has the power to deceive us and to cause us to trust in ourselves even when we are not even aware of doing so. The law is what will expose that evil force and drive us to the place of wretchedness that we might then, in devotion of spirit, cry out, Lord Jesus, it's your problem. Take it. And do it again and again and again and again until he takes us home. And that's what Paul wants us to understand, brothers and sisters. What makes you a Christian and helps you overcome sin is not simply that you say, I don't rescue myself, rescue me, Jesus. It's also, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be, present tense, not I'm going to do better. Not, I'm going to try harder. No, it's thank God and rejoice in the way in which Jesus has addressed the need you're trying to address through sin. We can try harder or we can thanks be to God. You can rejoice in the way in which Jesus Christ has addressed the need that you're trying to handle through your sin. What if you're struggling with resentment, with anger, towards somebody who's besmirched your reputation. Well, you can say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm going to be very nice to that person. I'm going to make them feel very badly because I'm so nice to them. After all, they've been so mean to me. You can do that, and that's very virtuous. But what you're doing is being a very nice Mr. Hyde. You haven't dealt with Edward Hyde in you. Instead, you say, I'm weak. I'm filled with sin. But who cares about the fact that my reputation has been hurt? Why do I care about what the peasants think of me when I have the honor of the king? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that in you, you love me. You care for me. <laughs> my reputation in you is perfect. You're my friend. You're my brother. Wow, you're my king. I love you more than any other, so much more than anything. What do you do at that point? That's thanking God for the salvation that if your heart really knew it, you wouldn't be out there in bitterness. You wouldn't be out there in resentment. All, your, all our sins, our bitterness, all our uh, lack of self-control, all our problems really are ways of just trying to rescue ourselves. So unless we thank God for how he's rescued us in Jesus Christ, rejoice in all this, our heart rests, and we say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the way we fight sin. And it's going to get better. Come back next week, chapter 8. You'll see. My friends, it's all because of Christ's love for us. It's like the question that Johnny Erickson Tata asked her husband, Ken. 
Those of you who are unfamiliar with her story, at 19 years of age in the late 60s, Johnny jumped into the Chesapeake Bay and broke her neck, and she's a quadriplegic. She lived her whole life since the late 60s, that's 50-something years now, in a wheelchair, glorifying God, praising God. She has a powerful ministry to families with handicaps. 25 years ago, this young middle school teacher just fed, he, fell head over heels for her. She's magnetic. She's beautiful. And she loves the Lord. And, and Ken Tata fell in love with her. And so in her latest newsletter, she, she put an article in there, just asked him the question, why in the world did you marry me? I mean, what, what were you thinking on the day of our wedding? And Ken said, the only thing I could think of is what you would look like in your wedding dress as you came down the aisle. And the doors opened, and there you were, coming down the center aisle of the church in your wheelchair. And I love you. That's what I was thinking. I think Johnny Erickson Tata is a perfect picture of the church. We're broken. We don't function at full capacity, but in Christ we function powerfully because he sees you as beautiful. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Let's live for him. What I want to do, I don't do. Yeah. That's us. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. The war is over. Let's follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this word which just reminds us that as everyone wrestles with our own sin in our lives, you have conquered it, you've conquered it in Jesus Christ. And so may we take these great truths and constantly come back and recognize more so than ever, that while we're wretched and we keep doing the things we don't want to do, you have delivered us, Lord Jesus Christ. You've delivered us from this body of death and, and call us your own. We're your children. And you love us because you love us. And therefore, we can live unto you for your glory. May we do so, Lord, with one voice. In Jesus' name, amen.